listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. chapter 18 this morning, and if you're new to South Point, we are going through the gospel of Luke, and um, just verse by verse, week by week, and this morning, my goal is to get through the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 18, and you know, last week, we were talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven, but also the fact that Jesus Christ, the king of the kingdom of heaven, is coming back one day, and there should be this urgency and this preparation on our part, and there's going to be judgment. It's going to be a terrible day when Jesus Christ comes back for those who are not ready for him to come back. And the only way we can be ready for him to come back is not through self-righteousness or performance, but through resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, through trusting his death in our place for our sin. He was the Son of God. He was perfectly righteous and he came and bore our sin and satisfied God's requirement. God's requirement for sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ satisfied the requirement of perfect righteousness and he satisfied the requirement by dying for our sin in our place, death. But then Jesus Christ rose victorious over sin and he's gone to be seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's coming back one day. And the world makes fun of him. People poke fun of him. Fun of him. Uh, they, they believe that we're a bunch of lunatics for being over here worshiping him and singing to him today as though he really does exist. But Scripture tells us that there's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we saw that in Luke 17, but now when we come to Luke 18, the first eight verses... Um, Luke is continuing with that thought process. What do we do? What do we do? How should we live while we wait for the return of Jesus Christ? That's in the first eight verses. And then the second thing we'll see is what kind of people get into the kingdom. That's, we're going to begin that, verse, verse number nine, and go through verse number 14. So I want to read the first eight verses and then talk through um, these verses for just a few minutes this morning and then get into verse number nine. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse one. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Again, he's going back to verse uh, chapter 17. What should you and I do until Jesus comes back? Well, until Jesus comes back, there's going to be this real temptation to lose heart. There's going to be this real temptation to give up, to throw in the towel. Remember in chapter 17, we saw this illustration of Noah. Um, Noah was told to go, he was given blueprints to something that nobody had ever seen in preparation for something that nobody had ever experienced. And he's told to do that in uh, a time when things were so wicked that God was going to destroy all of humanity. And so here Noah is not doing this for a few days or a few weeks or a few months, but Noah is building this ark for 120 years. Can you imagine perhaps the doubt that he experienced from time to time? And, and, and he's taking everything that he has and preparing in obedience to God, but he's also preparing a means of salvation for his family and anyone that will respond to his proclamation. So don't give up is what he's saying. Pray and be persistent in praying because waiting for Christ to come can be difficult and it may seem like it's taking a long time. He gives this parable, though. In giving this principle, I want you to pray. I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to quit. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Now, this is a wicked judge. This is a wicked judge. You say, why is he a wicked judge? Because he doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear man. He fears no one. 
This is a judge who doesn't love God. What, what are the, what are the, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. This guy is the antithesis of these great commandments. What Jesus has already revealed about what it means to live for him. This, this is the greatest fulfillment of the law. And this judge is the antithesis of that. A judge who neither feared God nor respected man. A powerful man. A powerful judge who can make decisions and control people's lives. That's over and against, by comparison, a widow. A widow. A widow who was having to represent herself in court, which was um, unheard of. You would have a male representative to go and plead your case for you. You would hire a lawyer to go and plead your case for you in court. But notice what the text says. There was a judge who feared, neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So here is a helpless widow that seemingly, at least based on our understanding, is alone. This is the picture that Jesus is painting in the parable, who is the antithesis of the judge. The judge is powerful and godless. Here is the widow who is as weak as a human being could possibly be with no representation. And here is a judge that is hearing her case, and there may be justice that needs to be done, and he is the one that meets out justice. And here is the woman that is seeking justice, but here is a judge that is treating her like she does not even exist, that she, like she does not even matter. Get this woman out of my presence. But what we're going to see in the text is day after day after day after day after day after day, this woman is coming into the courtroom, and she's pleading her case with this wicked, wicked, godless judge who doesn't care anything about God, who doesn't care anything about people. Notice the text, verse 4. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, and a lot of times people who don't fear God or care about people have a lot of conversations with themselves. And by the way, let me just remind you that probably the worst advice that you could ever get is the advice you give to yourself. When you start having conversations with yourself about yourself, about what you should do with your life, and you're asking the questions and you yourself are answering the questions, um, you're, you're probably headed in the wrong direction. Seek some godly counsel. But on the other hand, this man is having a conversation with himself. And here's what he said. Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Now, people would walk in and say, that's the wickedest judge in the county. And, and here he is saying, hey, when you see wicked judge in the dictionary, my picture's there. I am the wicked judge. I fear neither God nor man. He himself is saying that he's wicked. Verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. She's persistent. She's persistent. Now, what is he teaching us? He's teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us how to live. He's teaching us to have a longing for the return of Christ. Everything is messed up. Everything is wrong. Everything is broken. Sin dominates. He's saying, listen, in the context that you're in, don't get sucked into this world and its system. Don't grow lackadaisical. Don't grow careless. Don't, don't become dead spiritually, but you keep praying and you keep seeking for the Lord to come and make things right when he gets here. But he now moves it over into this picture of who God is in light of that. And while we've got this wicked judge who is strong and you've got this, this, this widow woman who is weak and no one to represent her, now God comes on the scene. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. So he's saying, God is saying, Jesus is saying in this parable, listen to the unrighteous judge. Would you listen to this man who is lost? Would you listen to this man who is wicked? Would you, would you look at how he responded when this woman was so persistent and wouldn't give up and wouldn't quit and wouldn't stop and wouldn't faint and wouldn't grow weary? She kept coming back day after day after day after day. Now he's going to put it in their context. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The presumption of the text is that we who are waiting for Christ to return are crying out to him day and night. 
We recognize the mess that this world is in. We recognize the mess that our hearts are in. We recognize the mess that our families are in. We recognize the, the huge mess all around us, and we can continue to go south or go north or go east or go west or, or go to communities way out in the boondocks or get to the suburbs, but they keep chasing us down and running us down, and now we have information that is accessible to us at any point in time of the day, and it seems like the world is chasing us down. There's no way to escape, and the only hope that we have is the return of Jesus Christ. And so he's saying that, that you and I, he's presuming that if we're waiting for him to come back, that we're going to be calling on him night and day persistently. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, and this is why I know he's taking this back to the last chapter. Nevertheless, this is why I know that this is focusing on those of us who are waiting for Christ to return. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes back, will he find people that are praying night and day? Will he find people that are pleading with him night and day? Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Even so, save my lost family members. Right? We're crying out to the Lord night and day. But he's saying, wait a minute. It could be that you're going to give out. It could be that you're not going to persist. It could be that you're going to be absorbed into the world. Because we had Noah in the last chapter. And here, Noah is taking all of his resources and all of his time and, and, and committing them to the, the word of God, obeying God, and committing them to the salvation of all who would believe. That's Noah, but then you've got Lot in Sodom who got absorbed into Sodom, and so much of Sodom got into the heart of his family. Not only did his wife turn back and become a pillar of salt, remember Lot's wife, we saw that last week, but we see he and his daughters going up into the mountain and doing what could only come out of the value system of Sodom and the corrupt heart of humanity. So will we persist in praying and hoping for the return of Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, faithlessness and prayerlessness go hand in hand. Our degree of hope and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the kingdom that we are in now on this earth, the invisible kingdom, and the kingdom that we're hoping for that is coming in the future, our investment and concern over those things and our faith in his soon return is, is manifested in the degree of our prayerlessness. And I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me. That's convicting to me. This world is attractive. It's powerful. It's alluring. It's tempting. I don't know if you're struggling or not, but I am. Right? I am. And he's saying, pray and be persistent in your prayer. Let me make some application for these eight verses. We should be praying until Jesus comes. Persistent, patient, desperate prayer. As we longingly anticipate the return of Jesus Christ, we will be tempted to give up and lose heart. Do you hear me? As we as we as we long for the return of Christ, we are going to be tempted to give up and lose heart and faint. He wouldn't, he wouldn't have to warn us if that were not the case. It's going to weaken us. It's going to beat us down. And he's saying when you feel weak and when you feel tired and when you feel distracted, pray. Secondly, by way of application, we should be living a life that sacrifices everything for the king and the kingdom that is coming. In other words, all of my life and all of my energy and all of my resources should be pointed toward and flowing toward the coming kingdom. Thirdly, by way of application, immersing ourselves in the character and nature of God will give us freedom and hope. He's revealing the character and nature of God here. He's revealing the nature and character of this wicked judge, but then he comes and by contrast says, this is what God is like in, in, in his heart, his character, his nature, his attributes. God is not like the powerful judge 
God is not like people who are successful and powerful. Something about success, something about prosperity, something about power always seems to go to our head and cause us to be less caring and less compassionate and have a disdainful heart to people that are not in our station of life and influence, right? Jesus is not like that. The king of kings is not like that. Consider his character. He is compassionate. He is loving. He is responsive. While this wicked judge didn't see this woman or value her, the Lord saw her. He sees, he responds to our helplessness and to our repentance. We need to understand that every one of us is like this, this widow woman in this text. We are longing to be seen. We are longing to be heard. We are longing to be noticed. You say, what's going on in the world today? Everywhere you go, you're like, uh, what? Why did that? And I don't understand fashion today. I really don't. Um, I, I don't understand all the different things that, and I'm not saying it's wrong. Uh, I just don't understand it. Is it okay if I don't understand something? Maybe you do. But I'll tell you what I think I see. I, I think I, I see a lot of people just like me living in this world who want to be seen. Who want to be seen? I have to be honest with you and tell you. I, I went up to I went up to Raven Gap Friday night. Took my grandkids. We drove up a winding trail to the top of a mountain so that my grandkids could sleep in some chalet that I'd never been in, and it smelled smelled like nobody had been in it for several months. You know how you walk in and something's got that kind of musty smell. And and uh, and as I walked in, there was a stack of firewood on the on the beside the front door, and there was a spider there the size of my hand. I mean, that spider could have eaten my grandkids while they were trying to sleep in that chalet. So I didn't sleep well uh, that night. Um, but when I went up there, I went to Luke's graduation Friday night. And when I went to Luke's graduation, I did Friday night um, what I did to my hair this morning. I, I, I found some glue, some paste, and I just ran it through. Because if I didn't have this glue or paste in my hair, my hair would look like the professor on uh, Back to the Future. I'm not lying to you. It would. I, I mean, that's just what I would look like. And so uh, I slept Friday night, and my daughter and son-in-law are moving into a house up there, and they need a lot of work, and, uh, and I'm the expert, uh, unless I need to call Lane Austin about some wiring or something like that. And, and, but I got up Saturday morning, and folks, I didn't do nothing to my hair. And that glue just made my hair stand straight up. And everywhere I went on Friday or, or Saturday, I went to Ace Hardware. I went to get lunch. I walked in, and I didn't care what it, Nobody knew me there. I didn't care what anybody thought of me. My wife kept looking at me funny like, you need to do something with your hair. And I'm like, I'm fixing to get it all cut off. <laughs> but I got up this morning and I, I've come through it and I've blew, I blew, blowed it dry. And I took some more stuff and I put it on my hands and I ran it through my hair. You know why I did that? Because I'm concerned about how I look and what you think about how I look. Okay? I, I pulled these pants out of the closet last night. My wife said, what are you going to wear tomorrow? I said, I'm going to wear these pants. She said, you've worn those pants 20 times without them being washed. <laughs> well, you don't know that. <laughs> so she, she, she took them down and she put them in the washing machine and she washed them. Why? And she ironed them because she's concerned about what I look like this morning. We're concerned about what we look like. And uh, a lot of what we look like is a covering or a facade or an image that we are projecting right? But I want to tell you something this morning. Jesus Christ loves you like you are. And if you will trust him, he will move towards you and he will relate to you in the midst of all of your mess and your sin and your brokenness. I want to tell you that he sees you this morning. He sees you. And you don't have to put on a front for him. And you don't have to be a pretender. Listen to this. Our longing to be seen and heard can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. You, you know why folks are in, in one broken relationship to another broken relationship? Because they think they found somebody that sees them and hears them. And then they find out that they didn't. You know why we're hurt so often? Because we think we found somebody we can trust that sees us and hears us, but we know they didn't. 
And here's what I want you to know, that there is a longing that has been placed in your heart by God to be seen and heard that can only be satisfied in him. And until you are living in the satisfaction and joy of him hearing you and seeing you, you will not be able to move toward others in a healthy way without trying to extract something from them to satisfy your longing that they can't satisfy. Look at these kids up here this morning. Look at them running around. They're, they're wondering, do you see me? Your kids are trying to get your attention. Do you see me? That is a longing that God has put in their heart to be seen. That can only be satisfied when we know that Jesus Christ sees us. He alone sees us for who we really are and wants us to see him standing with us as our advocate. He wants us to see him seeing us and noticing us and listening to us and responding to our deepest longings which is to be seen by him and to relate to him. He sees you. Many of us will do some crazy stuff that will damage our bodies and our souls to make sure we get seen. But your desire to be seen and to be heard and to be noticed and to be listened to, like this widow woman standing before an unrighteous judge, your desire to be seen and heard and noticed and loved is only satisfied in Christ and Christ alone. And so I plead with you this morning to come to him. And so finally, the point of the text is this. So pray. He is returning. He's going to make everything that is wrong right. So we ought to pray to this great God and not give up. Immersing yourself in the world, listening to the temptations of the world, giving up on God is not an option because it's, it's pure loss, 100% loss. Pray persistently. The second thing we see when we come to verse number 9 and going through verse number 14 is, is this, and he begins this, this uh, several passages that deal with who's going to get into the kingdom, right? That, that's, a, that's a question that constantly is being asked among the Jews. Who, when Messiah comes, who is going to be in Messiah's kingdom? What qualifies somebody to be in the kingdom? And so he's walking through, and he, he gives us these three um, passages that deal with people who are asking the question or else think they have made it into the kingdom. And we want to deal with the first one this morning, um, beginning in verse number 9. Look at the text. It's, again, another parable. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves... That's, that's important. That's important. You will never come to Christ if you trust in yourself. For by grace have you been saved through faith, not that of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any person should boast. It's not of ourselves. It is his work. And we'll see in the passage of the rich young ruler, after they listened to all that goes on in that dialogue with Jesus and the rich young ruler, they said, who then can be saved? They said, well, with man is it, it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The only possibility for salvation is not your performance. It's not your self-effort. It's not your self-righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. So he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves what? That they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Let me say quickly that this man who is describing others around him and describing himself and his self-righteousness is probably right on all accounts. The text doesn't say that his sin was lying about what he said. The text is telling us that this guy had a problem with contempt. He had a problem with contempt. So, so he told this parable. He's speaking to those who trust it. So we, we're, getting, we're getting the understanding of what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Um, Self-righteousness and contempt, treating others with contempt. Now, here's the parable. Two men went up, and you've heard this often, and I love the, these texts are so familiar and so beautiful, and I, I, I love them. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, by the way, he was not going to get close to anybody else that was in there. He was not going to soil himself by getting close to anybody else that was around him. It's interesting that this guy went to the temple, went to the house of God, and probably got as close to the Holy of Holies as he could probably get because he thought he was holy enough to do that. And so he is in here, and he is thinking of himself, and he is judging others. Standing by himself, prayed thus, God 
I thank you that I'm not like other men. He probably wasn't like other men. He said, I thank you that I'm not an extortioner. Probably wasn't an extortioner. I thank you that I'm not unjust. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. Even like this tax collector, all those things are true. All those things are true. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. All those things are true. If you met this guy, if you knew this guy, if you know somebody like this guy, you probably think that's one of the greatest guys I've ever met. This is one of the godliest men I've ever met. This is one of the holiest men I've ever met. This is one of the most righteous men I've ever met. This is one of, this is one of the greatest Christians I've ever met. That's what most of us would say about this guy. He, he's a great Christian. He's an admirable Christian. We see his antithesis. We see the opposite. We see the comparison. Who's getting in the kingdom? Let me just let you in on a little secret. As Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are listening to Jesus tell this story, it is beyond their ability to even comprehend that the tax collectors, we're going to see in the text, is going to walk away justified, and this self-righteous Pharisee would walk away condemned. They would say that if one guy's getting into the kingdom and one guy's not getting into the kingdom, this is simple math right here, brother. This is one plus one equals two. And simple math would say that this Pharisee's getting in the kingdom and the tax collector's not getting in the kingdom. That's what they would say. This is just simple math. This, uh, this does not take analytical thinking. This does not take critical thinking. And they would view the conclusion of this text as absolutely scandalous. They would be so offended by this. Notice the tax collector. But the tax collector, as opposed to standing by himself up front, is standing afar off. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast or chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. One comes in righteous, bragging to God about how good he's been. Another comes in cankered up with sin, pleading for mercy. And the one who looked the best, who all of us would say is the best Christian, is the guy who didn't go home justified. But the guy who came in in the worst shape and pled for mercy went home justified. What's going on in the text of Scripture? Number one, we see that the Pharisee was confident in his self-righteousness. He believed that he was perfectly Righteous. He believed that as he stood there in that place, that God was saying, Wow, wow, I'm so pleased with you. I'm so amazed with you. You're so good. He believed that he was righteous. Jesus is dealing with the issue of self righteousness. What he forgot was that Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 was declared righteous because of his faith, not because of his performance. You see, what he forgot was Isaiah 64, 6. We, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are all of an unclean thing. He, he forgot Romans 3, 10 and 23. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He forgot Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked. He forgot all of that. He, for, he forgot Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith, not that of yourselves or your self-righteousness. You see, the Pharisee didn't understand the Scriptures. And when we, when we begin to think that we are self-righteous, we don't understand the Scriptures. The second thing we see is, is that the Pharisee didn't, didn't understand the entire sacrificial system because the entire sacrificial system, and, and, and a good Jew should have known this, the entire sacrificial system is based on substitutionary atonement. That's why you had to bring an animal and kill an animal in your place for your sin as a sacrifice. And we understand that more clearly from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. It's talking about the suffering servant who's, who's going to come, the perfectly righteous one who will then die in the place of those who are unrighteous. And when they receive him, then his righteousness is given to 
them. The Pharisee didn't understand the scriptures. The Pharisee didn't understand substitutionary atonement. The Pharisee was probably a very righteous person, not compared to God, but compared to his own standards, compared to his fellow Pharisees, compared to other deplorables in the worship service with him, compared to the people that he was avoiding and steering clear of. He performed well, and he's not noted for anything in particular that he's done wrong except contempt, except contempt. So, so he was confident in his self-righteousness as many times as we are, but he was also filled with contempt. And I, I want you to listen, listen carefully um, because we all struggle with contempt. And you may not even know it. We all struggle with contempt and you may not even know it. it it's in our marriages. It's in our parenting. It's in our work relationships. And many times it may not spill over into relationships, or at least we think it doesn't, but it comes out through our spirit, it comes out through our tone, it comes out through our energy, it comes out through our snide comments, it comes out through our gossip, it comes out through our criticism. The text is telling us this man was filled with contempt. So I, I want to talk about contempt for a minute. What is contempt? Let me give you the biblical definition. If you look up uh, this word contempt, if you go to a, a, a Bible uh, app or website and you go to Luke chapter 18 and verse number 9 and you look up this word contempt, the word, the Greek word here for contempt is going to be defined as this, to regard something as lacking any standing. To look at something and say, you have no standing. It's kind of like the judge was treating the woman initially. You have no standing. You do not matter. The judge treated the woman with contempt. If, if you, again, look at more definition, it means to reject, to cast aside, to view as deplorable, to disregard, to despise. We see it in Luke 23, 11, where Jesus is crucified and he is viewed with contempt. Here's what happens generally. Somebody will say to you, you are wrong right? Now, when somebody tells us we're wrong, that touches our shame. That pushes our shame button. We feel shame. We hate to be told we're wrong. I, don't, I, don't, I hate to be told I'm wrong. It's probably because I'm right most of the time, but I hate to be told I'm wrong. I don't like for my wife to tell me I'm wrong. I don't like for her to correct my driving. I don't like for her to, her to tell me my pants need to be washed. Pants were fine. Dag on it. Usually when somebody tells us we're wrong or we feel inadequate or we, we feel worthless, that touches shame and shame swells up inside of us. And that shame, once it erupts inside of us, is, is either going to move toward contempt or it's going to move toward the cross. It's going to move to Jesus bearing our shame, which he did, to what Christ has done and we can be set free. Or that shame is going to move us to contempt. And I don't know about you, but um, I've experienced a lot of contempt in my life and still do. It's just there in my heart and soul. Comes out. Comes out. So, where does contempt come from? Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. And um, you can look at Genesis 2.25. And in Genesis 2.24, uh, God brings Eve to Adam. Adam looks at Eve, says, Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Genesis 2.24. And for this cause shall a man leave his father and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. In Genesis 2.25. And they were naked, and the next word is unashamed, without shame. Naked and unashamed. They were fully exposed, they were fully accepted, and there was no shame. Listen, in the garden, Adam and Eve and God, there is no shame. We were not built for shame. We were not created to carry shame. Please understand that. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a healthy place for shame in a fallen world. But most of our shame is processed in an unhealthy way and creates an unhealthy result. But in Genesis 2, there is no 
shame that is gumming up relationships. Nothing impacts us more heavily and destructively than the invasion of shame. It is a product of the fall. It's the favorite weapon of the accuser. And it's, and it's the most powerfully motivating force in the universe. We will do anything to avoid a sense of shame. And most of us do what we do in life to avoid shame. From dressing up to dressing up our houses to making sure we look good in the projection of our persona. Shame is, shame is powerful. Shame is constant. Shame is real. Shame is pervasive. And we live many times just to avoid shame. But, but where did shame come from then? And how does shame produce contempt? And I'll, I'll try to cover it briefly. And it's limited to my understanding, which is very shallow. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 7, we know that Adam and Eve have already partaken of the fruit. They've, they've run off into the, the woods and they've started clothing themselves with fig leaves. Why? Because now they're not unashamed. They are ashamed. And the, the scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 that their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. They initially were naked and unashamed, but now their eyes are open. They know that they are naked and, and they're no longer unashamed. And they ran quickly to hide and created a covering for their shame. They created a persona. They created a mask so that no one could see them for who they really were in their nakedness and in their shame. And if you read further in Genesis chapter 3, you say, okay, Adam, why did you do this? Okay, Eve, why did you do this? And they're now in their contempt blaming everybody else once they get exposed but don't don't miss the covering with the fig leaves shame and contempt go hand in hand they are two of the most dominant forces of our sin nature so let us understand that contempt is how we handle shame outside of God contempt is the only emotion that is strong enough to cover shame. And watch this. Self-righteousness is contempt. Because before the self-righteousness was a sense of shame. And that shame said, how am I going to cover my shame? How am I going to cover my sense of inadequacy? How am I going to cover the sense of pain that I feel? And when shame hits, I've got to respond and do something. And the response to shame is, let me cover my shame with this sense of self righteousness. No, I've, I've not done anything wrong. No, I'm not wrong. And the self-righteousness now causes this guy in his self-righteousness that he's used to cover his shame to be filled with contempt. Self-righteousness is contempt. We perform well to compensate for our shame. Self-righteousness is our covering for our temporary relief from our shame. It is a form of contempt. Contempt is probably one of the strongest motivators and present emotions in most of our lives. It comes out in our parenting. What do you do when your teenager does something really dumb? We go ballistic. <laughs> we just go crazy. Why? Because they, they made us ashamed. Has anybody, anybody here, your kid, ever made you ashamed? Come on. Am I the only one? Anybody here make your parents ashamed? What do they do? Boy, they, ca they came down on you with contempt. Why? Because you weren't, you weren't, you didn't have a good enough covering. We got to put on this covering, this covering of self-righteousness. Because we've got, to, we've got to hide our shame and we respond with contempt. It's in our parenting. It's in our marriage relationship. We gossip because we're filled with contempt. We complain because we're filled with contempt. Things should be better. I deserve better. I feel shame when things don't go the way I think they should go and things should be better and I've really worked hard and I've performed well and, and I'm doing all of these things right so now give me a good result and when I don't get a good result I'm filled with contempt. Our avoidance, our anger are performing well. Most people who are very righteous or very successful are driven by contempt. 
Have you ever heard Michael Jordan's story? There is not a place in Michael Jordan's story that he did not react out of shame, which produced contempt that made him try harder to cover his shame for not being the best. We do that with our kids, by the way. We shame them because they make bad grades, right? We, we shame them because they don't make enough money. We shame them because they don't have a, a good enough job. We shame them when they fail. But that shame is out of our own contempt and self. Sense, sense of shame. We don't want to feel shame based on their actions. So we must take this into account at how contempt is driving our lives. I, I told somebody this week that most of what I would have called good preaching throughout most of my life was contemptuous preaching. Where somebody is just, just, oh, let me tell you about all these wicked people, all this wickedness all around us, all you wicked people and all you you're drinking and smoking and chewing and all the stuff that you're doing. You're like, oh, boy, he got on it tonight. Right? We, we loved preaching that makes us feel guilty, but it generally is coming out of somebody that's very angry. Not me. Right? Their veins are popping out, their voice is loud, and you start feeling guilt, you start feeling shame, and there's no way out except to do better and to try harder and to be self-righteous. If you're self-righteous enough, you can just you can be in the club, be in the inner circle. So how do we deal with contempt? First of all, we deal with contempt by being aware of it. Be aware of it. Having a critical spirit is not a spiritual gift. Continually seeing yourself above others or others beneath you is not a spiritual attribute. Feeling something hit you inside and reacting contemptuously when your shame is touched is something you and I need to be attuned to. Okay, this was said. This happened. Why did I react this way? Because they were wrong. Right? And I believe in righteousness. No, because your shame was touched. We must be aware of the constant conversation in our interior world between shame and contempt and be aware of our natural fallen tendency to cover our shame with self-justification. When somebody criticizes you, what, what do you do? You say, you know, hmm, you might be right. Fat chance. Somebody criticizes me, I've got a file folder, and all I have to do is hit the self-justification button. You let your spouse tell you that there's something you need to do. And what are you going to do? You're going to go to everything that you've already done. Well, I don't beat you. You ought to appreciate me. Right? We go to everything. Remember that, remember that birthday present I gave you 10 years ago? I took you to, I took you to McDonald's last week. Self-justification. All the good things that we, we respond to when shame hits us. We need to be aware of Shame and contempt when our shame is touched and the contempt that springs out of it. Secondly, um, um, we need to understand the connection between contempt and shame. Identify the constant bombardment and invasion of shame. The, the, the worst, most convicting and sickening feeling in the world is the experience of shame unless you are a sociopath. That's the worst feeling in the world. The experience of shame unless you have no feeling at all. Now, we're interpreting as a, as, as a lot of different things, but when shame hits us, it grips us, and we will do anything that we can to avoid it. How, how do we deal with contempt? We need to realize that there are only two places we can do, go with contempt. We can go, to, or we can go with shame. We can go to contempt, or we can go to the cross. We can let contempt consume us, or we can run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2 says, Jesus despised the shame. Why was he despising the shame? Because that shame was going to be put on him. And that shame is terrible. That shame is awful. All of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the sin, our guilt and shame and sin were put on him, and he bore it. And I can run to the cross and accept the fact that he bore that shame, and I can be welcomed into the throne room of grace like I belong there, come boldly to the throne of grace. 
I can look in the mirror and say that for by grace have you been saved through faith, not that of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, as any man should boast. And we are now created in Christ Jesus unto good works or a masterpiece and say, you know what, I am a masterpiece. And now I can move toward others out of that same grace and that same hope and that same life-giving spirit and energy. And that's what the tax collector did. That's what the tax collector did. Standing afar off, unlike the confident Pharisee, he felt the weight of his sin. He felt the weight of his shame. He recognized that he was unworthy, and he cried out for mercy. Have mercy on me. I'm not as bad as other tax collectors. I'm an honest tax collector. I'm a good tax collector. No, no self-justification. He simply cried out for mercy. The plea for mercy can be, no, can be nothing else than to ask a just and righteous God to punish someone else for your sin. A just and righteous God, holy God, must punish sin. If God is just, sin cannot be overlooked. It has to be punished. If mercy is dispensed, it has to be based on someone else besides the recipient of the mercy paying for the sin. Who paid for it? Jesus did. The tax collector, rather than looking around at the deplorables around him, rather than looking to himself and talking about how well he covered his shame with his self-righteousness, the tax collector looked at himself and looked at his sin and he took it to the cross and he repented of his sin where Christ took his shame on the cross. And the Bible tells us that he went home justified. Now listen, the tax collector went home self, or the, the Pharisee went home self-righteous, but the tax collector went home justified. He was made just by the finished work of Jesus Christ. He went home in love with God and man. He went home with the ability to have compassion and offer grace to those in sin. He went home thankful and worshipful. The Pharisee, on the other hand, went home with pride and asked God for nothing and told God how good he was and how bad everybody else was, and he went home with contempt, locked in the sin of contempt, which was far worse than the sin of being a tax collector. Let me, let me make some application and I'll be done. Number one, who are you in this parable? the self-righteous Pharisee or the tax collector pleading for mercy. Can I tell you something? If you are a self-righteous Pharisee, you will move toward others to bring shame. You will encourage others to cover their shame with self-righteousness. And you will encourage others to be as contemptuous as you are. And you will enjoy the company of critical, contemptuous people. You hear me? And by the way, you'll have, you'll have a really stinky attitude toward people that are in sin. These people that sin. Oh, these people that sin, right? You know what they're doing? That's the self-righteous one. Tax collector? He went home and he would look at somebody in sin and he would say, there's hope for you in your sin. There's mercy available for that sin. There's healing for that sin. There's grace for that sin. You don't have to stay in that sin. You can be redeemed from that sin. You can be saved from that sin. I know what it's like to be in the sin that you're in. Can, can, can I get down here and can I grab a hold of you? Can I walk with you? Can I love you? Can I show you the love of Christ? Secondly, what do you hate more? The sin around you or the sin within you? So that's a great question. Because if all you're talking about is all this sin around us, all this world, all this world, all those people, you may be a self-righteous Pharisee. Thirdly, are you aware of the power of shame in your life? It surfaces hundreds of times in the course of a week. You're not good enough. You're worthless. You're looked down on. You're a loser. You're a failure. 
Many of you right now are in careers that were foisted upon you because somebody spoke to you and shamed you. You'll never amount to anything. My, my, bio, my biology professor, just because I failed biology and physics and, and, and any kind of science, I failed all of them. And he said, Mark Powell, you'll never amount to anything. I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten it. Many of you are doing what you do right now because you're trying to cover shame. You're trying to cover shame. And you keep hearing those voices over and over again. You're a failure. You have things in your heart and mind. Thoughts, lust, greed, temptation. You have things that you're involved in, that you're hiding, you don't want exposed. Are you aware of the power of shame in your life? Fourthly, if we're unaware of the incidence and power of shame, it is dominating us and we are killing ourselves trying to hide it. That's what the Pharisee was doing. And our efforts are probably producing contempt. Contempt presses us to perform well and be judgmental of those who don't. Performing well to cover sin and having contempt for those who do sin is not holiness. It is not holiness. Contempt is undeniable, number five. Pervasive, a transmitted energy force that everybody around us consents. If you have contempt in your heart, people that are around you can sense it. And for most people, it pushes them back. For most people, it's distasteful. But for other Pharisees, they love it. A lot of times we'll say, I'll tell you what, man, that guy's a man of conviction. Nothing wrong with conviction. But just make sure your conviction is not something that you're using to cover shame that's producing contempt. Where's our compassion? Contempt infects our parenting and our marriages and our life at church and work, and yet it is attractive. It feels powerful. There is something about contempt that makes us feel powerful, and we love power. We love power. I'll hasten. And that is why we have verse 14. This is the final verse of the text. It is self-righteous people who exalt themselves, who list other people's sins and weaknesses and offenses, who are filled with contempt and want to have power and want to dominate. The text is telling us those that are self-exalting are going to be humiliated one day. If you are the Pharisee, you are going to be forced into humility. You will be humiliated. You will be regretfully humble, and you will be knocked off of your pedestal. But the text is also telling us if we will humble ourselves, if we will choose humility, humble yourself. Don't wait for humility to be foisted, forced upon you, but humble yourself. Choose humility. Choose repentance. Choose to rest in the mercy of God and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you won't have to exalt yourself. You won't need to exalt yourself. The water, the water of humility that flows from the life of Christ is far more refreshing than the putrid, polluted water of self-righteousness. Contempt. If we will humble ourselves, we won't have to cover ourselves with fig leaves. We won't have to be self-righteous. We won't have to be dominated by shame and contempt. We can come to Christ and we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And at the throne of grace, we say, he did it. He did it. And I'm a masterpiece. And you can be too.